This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In 2018, scientists reported dramatic losses in populations of one of North America's most charismatic insects, the monarch butterfly. With an estimated 14.8% decline of eastern monarchs and a precipitous 86% one-year decline in western monarchs. While monarchs are known for seasonal fluctuation in their numbers, this week we speak with monarch researcher Dr. Anurag Agrawal of Cornell University to learn much more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. For this, our second in a series of five episodes focusing on the issues of habitat and species loss and the ways that we as engaged and informed nature-loving home gardeners can make a difference, we're joined by Dr. Anurag Agrawal. Dr. Agrawal is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the Department of Entomology at Cornell University. His research is specifically focused on co-evolution seen through the lens of the ancient relationship between monarch butterflies and their host larval plants, the milkweeds. Dr. Agrawal has published a good portion of his research findings in the 2017 book titled Monarchs and Milkweed, A Migrating Butterfly, a Poisonous Plant, and Their Remarkable Story of Co-Evolution. He's here to share much more and joins us from the Cornell Production Studios. Welcome, Dr. Agrawal. Thanks very much. Great to be here, Jennifer. I would like to have you describe for listeners your most current work in the study of this charismatic co-evolutionary pair? What does it what does it look like on the ground for you, maybe privately as well as professionally, if this is a passion that you carry into your home garden travel life also? Sure. Well, it certainly is something for me that's uh, both personal and professional. Uh, I'll start with the prof- professional. I'd say there's um, there's research that we do that is you know in the laboratory, and then also research that's in the field. And um, in the laboratory, whether it's using computers or or uh, chemistry equipment, we're we're trying to decipher some of the the ancient arms race that has gone on between monarchs and milkweeds. You know they're at battle, uh, trying to duke it out. Uh, monarchs wanting to eat the plants and the plants wanting to defend themselves. And our current obsession has to do with actually relatively detailed, fine-scaled aspects of the poisons, the chemical toxins that milkweeds make to ward off being fed upon by monarchs. And um, you know, there's, those details are, you know, uh, at their core, have a lot of to do with the structures that the, of the chemicals that, that the plants make. And I won't, don't need to get into that here necessarily, but... Um, we're actively engaged in, in trying to understand that. Um, in the field, you know, we're monitoring their populations and we're trying to input those data into models, uh, statistical models to understand what factors are driving populations up or down 
Um, and of course, as we all know, the long-term trend has been down. And so uh, I'm engaged in that kind of work also, which is, of course, um, important and very timely given um, the many things that are going on right now. Yeah, yeah. And on a personal front? Well, on a personal front, um, you know, one of the things that I think makes monarchs and milkweeds so special and perhaps one of the reasons they're such an icon of nature is that um, they tend to be in many places that we are, in our backyards, in our front yards, um, on the side of the train tracks. And so certainly everywhere I go with my family, um, you know, we're – I was going to say we're all on the lookout, but I'm probably a little more on the lookout than, than the rest of them. But um, uh, my 10-year-old daughter, Anna, and 14-year-old son, Jasper, certainly um, I've been able to engage them in the process. And, um, you know, what, what's more fun than, than hiking out there in the woods or the fields and um, doing the various things we're doing, but also keeping an eye out for the, for the critters? Yeah. They are such recognizable pairs, specifically the butterfly, but as a plants person, the milkweeds are. And it, they are everywhere we go, and they're recognizable. So it feels like an old friend. You know, I will be in my home garden in Northern California, and in will come the monarch and I'll be ecstatic. And then I'll be hiking in the high country in the Sierra and in the summer and there will be a monarch and it's greeting an, an old friend in many ways. So describe, you go over a lot of what we're going to cover today in the book, but for people that, that may not have read the book, uh, describe for us how you came to be interested in this work in the beginning. Like what kind of upbringing did you have that led you to be a person that noticed and loved plants and animals enough that you followed this as your life's work? Right. Um, well, I give my mother a lot of credit, um, you know, and I think it's not necessarily for all the reasons that she intended, but she uh, was and continues to be uh, an incredible gardener. You know, she's fearless in terms of planting seeds from a you know, a, a fruit that she you know, cut into at a restaurant and saved a couple of the seeds to ones that she's brought back from uh, from India, where uh, where her origin is, and um, and so she spent a lot of time while I was growing up uh, in the garden, planting things, growing things, and um, I can only assume that that had a profound influence on me. Uh, I do the same, although perhaps to a lesser extent, with vegetables. Um, than, than she does. But I'd say that really set the stage. I mean, I, I grew up in uh, rural Pennsylvania outside of Allentown. It's a place where, you know, it's relatively suburban. The yards were big and the gardens were productive. You know, from there, I, I, I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, you know, the irony there is that I kind of um, was thinking about uh, social sciences and humanities more as a major and as a career. And, and, and the kind of proviso that my parents put on my undergraduate education was that I at least take some science and math classes. And, um, you know, fair enough. I feel like uh, I didn't know what I was getting into. I kind of knew uh, uh, that I wanted to try certain things and they didn't uh, sort of discourage me too much away from that. And um, I fell into a biology class, introductory biology class that was taught by uh, Professor Jansen. And um, I didn't know anything about him at the time. It was... Um, it was more that it was a convenient class uh, in terms of my schedule, and I had read something about it. And um, the students had the pre-past students had said that this professor came late to class and left early, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that struck a chord with me as a uh, 
you know, a, a budding scientist uh, in terms of uh, a, a class that I might want to take. And so, you know, but the other the other nickname the class had was darkness at noon. And it was it obviously occurred at noon. And um, it was typically a slideshow where Professor Jansen would um, tell long and elaborate stories in natural history um, in ecology and in evolutionary biology. And uh, his own passion was insects and plants, uh, in particular in the tropical dry forests of Costa Rica. Um, and I, I kind of ha- I remember there's a light bulb moment where you know, some of his stories would you know, be rather graphic and disgusting. He was rearing a bot fly, a parasitic fly, in his arm, taking pictures and explaining the biology of these organisms. And the light bulb moment for me was you know, when a, a sizable fraction of the uh, undergraduate audience in the class was kind of horrified and disgusted. And I just found myself absolutely enamored. You know, I, kind of, I remember telling my friends at dinner that evening about um, the incredible stories, and they looked befuddled, but I, I kind of knew I was onto something in terms of a passion. So I give him uh, a reasonable amount of credit for that. And, um, you know, from there, it's graduate school, and it's picking your study organisms and falling in love, and, and 20 years later, here we are. And you fell in love with the monarch and the milkweeds in time. I want to get into the book, and I want to get into the kind of details of your research You've already brought up a couple of terms that I think it's important to go ahead and define. The first one is coevolution itself. Describe what coevolution is and describe why the monarch and milkweed pair make such a beautiful lens for looking at the whole concept. Sure. Yeah, coevolution is like regular evolution, except that it involves typically two species that are evolving in response to each other. Um, and in the case of monarchs and milkweeds, it's uh, their antagonists in the sense that the plant is the food of the, of the monarch butterfly. Um, but I think you know, everywhere we look outside and whether you're looking in your garden or in a forest, uh, we see adaptation or evolution all around us in terms of organisms being well-fit uh, through the process of natural selection to their environment. In coevolution, the organisms are well matched and have evolved in response to their partner. And you know, in some coevolutionary interactions, it might be a plant and its pollinator in a mutually beneficial relationship, or coevolution might occur among a predator and a prey, or it might occur between two competitors. Uh, in in all of the cases, there's two species that are interacting and evolving in response to each other. Mm-hmm. Monarchs and milkweeds are interesting, I think, from a couple of perspectives in, in, with regard to understanding coevolution. Mm-hmm. One is that uh, the monarch, as a butterfly, as an insect, as an animal, basically makes its living by eating one food source, and that is the milkweed plant. And, you know, in, in kind of scientific terms, we would say that that's a dietary specialist. Mm-hmm. It'd be as if, you know, we only ate lettuce or only ate hamburgers or whatever it were. Basically, it's not one species in the case of the monarchs. They'll eat any milkweed plant. And, and North America has a, you know, 130 species of Asclepius, the, the 
the genus that contains the milkweeds that we know and love. Mm -hmm. So they're a specialist at that kind of level of any one of these Asclepias. So in turn, when you're that specialized, uh, what it means is, is that you, you know, almost by definition have to be highly adapted to eating that food plant. If I took a thousand monarch eggs and I put them on lettuce or cabbage or a sunflower, they would simply not eat. They, sit, they, they starve. They'll wander off. They might take a little tiniest of nibble, but they don't recognize it as food. The flip side, so the, the adaptations or evolution on the part of the monarch are pretty clear. It's highly specialized uh, to eat this one food plant. Now, when a plant in this case is, um, is very regularly attacked by one set of organisms, in this case the monarchs, uh, they evolve over time uh, an arsenal of defensive traits. Uh, it's putting up barriers to being fed upon. I mean, the, the plant can't run away. Uh, there it is rooted in the ground, mm -hmm. you know, taking sunlight, carbon dioxide, and water and using those for photosynthesis. And so when that egg is laid on a leaf, um, you know, that's when the magic begins in terms of the coevolutionary battle kind of unfolds in a, in a play in a way through the behaviors and defensive traits that the, uh, the monarchs and the milkweeds um, release as that egg hatches and the, and the feeding starts. And One of the things that I found really interesting, and I can't decide why, but I did, uh, my, my partner, John, read your book before I did, and he said, you have to read this. You're, you're going to love it. And was this metaphor of the arms race and the importance of this in understanding how these two species have co-evolved. And there are, of course, a lot of specialists out there in the world, both plants and animals. But this is an interesting relationship and this adversarial or antagonistic one in which you make it very clear that the monarch is completely dependent in its larval stage on milkweed in order to survive. The you, you just mentioned, and you go through it in depth in the book, the study where you try putting some of the tiny caterpillars or the eggs onto cabbage to see what happens. And they just, they starve to death because they don't recognize food. And so the monarchs find and lay their eggs on, they don't, they find the milkweed in order to lay their egg. And they lay their egg, it hatches, and the larva has food at its immediate disposal. The milkweed, on the other hand, has absolutely no use for the monarch. It is The monarch is a pest on the, the, the plant and would defoliate it and eat it out of existence if the milkweed was not in turn coming up with all kinds of adaptations. And, and you are, um, you, you lay out pretty clearly that each step isn't necessarily like one in order after another, um, right. but it has come to this over this long of period of time. Now, describe these defenses that you're talking about because they were so interesting. And this idea, I think especially as a home gardener to whom a lot of information is is sent and a lot of marketing is done by the the bigger world, there is this very beautiful poster child of the monarch as as the you know one of the poster children along with the honeybee of the pollinator rallying cry 
you make clear, and it's clear if you watch very often or very closely in your own home garden, butterflies are beautiful, but they aren't great pollinators. And um, and 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 they they drink a lot of nectar, and they are they are beautiful, and they mark all kinds of seasonal changes and phenology changes in our in our places. But they aren't great pollinators, and the monarch especially is not a pollinator on the milkweed. So, I think this level of awareness and accuracy is really important. Yeah, I mean, I I, I certainly agree with that, and I, you know. I think one of the dangers in some ways of saying um, we only need to preserve or conserve those species that have an important function for us is that if we discover that, oh, they don't actually have that function, then we're left with the dilemma of, oh, OK, they're not important maybe and maybe we don't need to conserve them. Um, so I, I would agree that you know butterflies are important and integral parts of the ecosystem. They're, they're beautiful. They're fun to watch. They're abundant. They're flying by. They mark the seasons, as you say. Um, as it turns out, uh, butterflies are not important pollinators. They get some uh, – the average butterfly gets some pollen grains on its proboscis, which is the entomological term for the mouth part. It's like a straw that gets unfurled to drink up nectar. Uh, but how much pollen they actually move around for a, for a typical plant is unclear. But milkweeds are kind of an extreme case here. They don't um, they don't have free flowing pollen grains the way a goldenrod or a daisy might. Um, they package milkweed plants package their pollen in uh, little packets that we call pollinia, and um, it's really it's kind of cool that you know it's milkweeds and orchids that have this special way of presenting their pollen, um, and so for an insect to move around the pollen. Uh, it has to drag kind of its spiny legs across part of the flower and pull out that pollinia structure and then later fly around and it gets incidentally inserted into the, the slit or the female part of the flower uh, after which fertilization uh, and seed production can can occur. And, and um, the way monarchs are – I love monarch butterflies as you know, but I think of them as kind of big clumsy butterflies on a milkweed flower or set of flowers. And so they often sit on top and uh, the way they sit, they drink the nectar, their legs don't um, drag and pull out the pollinia uh, in an effective way. And so that limits uh, really pollen transfer that they might they might do otherwise. Mm-hmm. The kind of cool thing about that from a – you know, an evolutionary biology perspective is that it clarifies the relationship between monarchs and milkweeds. Yeah. So, um, you know, for some plants, uh, they need a particular insect as a pollinating visitor, but maybe then the larvae or the, the juveniles or caterpillars of that same insect might feed on the leaves. So for that kind of plant, there's a dilemma at play. I need the species as my pollinator, but I don't like so much that its uh, children are eating my leaves. And, and, and in which case, there's a mutualistic and an antagonistic side to the story, which makes it more complicated. Mm-hmm. For monarchs and milkweeds, it's a little more simple. So uh, given that they're not effective pollinators, we can view the monarch as purely a, a predator or antagonist of the plant. Uh, the plant simply doesn't need, need the monarch. And I do, I want to point out that my point in in emphasizing that is that I think it's really important that we as the general public and we as home gardeners uh, who 
I value in this world profoundly, um, that we're, we're sort of accurate in our understanding because we love the monarch for its monarchness. And yeah. we love the milkweed for its milkweedness, not because they do anything for us. We don't need them to be the pollinator rallying cry for us to hold them as dear beyond measure. I couldn't agree more. Today, in our second of five episodes in a series on our gardens as critically important habitat, we talk all things monarch butterflies and their only larval host plant, the milkweeds. We're joined by Dr. Anurag Agrawal, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology and entomology at Cornell University. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's me. I was really stretched by reading Dr. Agrawal's book, by his straightforward presentation of his research findings and what they do and don't mean to him and his own actions in support of biodiversity. The putting together of this five-part series on our gardens as habitat has stretched me as a whole, and it's been an honor to put it together. I hope you're enjoying it two episodes in. Being able to think ahead and plan and curate such a series is directly related to listener feedback and support. So thank you. Every one of you who signed up as a monthly $10 donor in support of Cultivating Place and who reached out and expressed to me how much you enjoyed your first monthly Garden Life Love Letter meant a great deal to me. The voice of Robin Kimmerer in your first audio bonus her knowledge and wisdom and deep warmth, it was an honor to share that with you. For those of you who might still be interested in receiving this monthly bonus audio as sustaining donors of just $10 a month, you still have through March 31st to take part. I'm already having fun putting together your next Garden Life Love Letter headed your way on April 15th. Maybe it will help soften any sting of tax day. All of us on the Cultivating Place team are so grateful for your generosity and hope you take pride in the important difference that your sustaining donations make. In addition to donating, there are, of course, lots of ways to support this program you love, listen to, and learn from. The first being to share it forward. We'd love if you told a friend about the show. Tell your best friend, your gardening group, your neighbor with amazing window boxes, the people who work down at the nursery, because I know you all are at your nurseries a lot this time of year. Share this experience with them. Help them subscribe to the show on their phones or introduce them to our Cultivating Place Instagram community. That's cultivating underscore place. Along with sunlight, regular watering, and some care and attention, word of mouth is a great way for podcasts to grow. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Anurag Agrawal. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to continue our conversation with Dr. Anurag Agrawal. His research at Cornell is specifically focused on the ancient relationship between monarch butterflies and milkweed plants. His book titled 
monarchs and milkweed, a migrating butterfly, a poisonous plant, and their remarkable story of coevolution makes the relationship between these two charismatic North American species clear, dispelling some misunderstandings and reiterating important actions we as home gardeners can take to help. Welcome back. The rundown in the book over the different upping ante over how to how this plant has adapted in order to deter this pest from eating it out of existence is fascinating. It is dramatic and and grotesque and fabulous. So walk us through those defenses. Sure. Um well, the, the egg hatches, and the first thing a monarch caterpillar, as many, many caterpillars do, is they eat the egg shell. There's a lot of protein in, in that, and it's a, it's a good sort of first mini-meal. Um, but unfortunately, after that, the caterpillar, the monarch, can't kind of get to or sink its teeth, what we call mandibles, um, into the leaf yet. And so the first barrier to feeding that the milkweed has put forward are a bed of, of hairs. Uh, botanically, we call these trichomes. Um, but basically, you know, I think most gardeners have seen this. Uh, a leaf surface may be green and completely smooth. It might have little stippled hairs, or there might be a grayish sheen from very dense hairs. And milkweed plants are variable in terms of different species are, have different levels of hairiness. But so that the first barrier to feeding then is this bed of hairs. And, and what monarch caterpillars do on their first day of life, having just hatched out of that egg, is they shave the lawn. Um, they cut those hairs in a circle, maybe a, a quarter inch in diameter. Um, they will go back and forth using their teeth not to eat the hairs, but to simply clip them and move them out of the way. Yeah. And, and that behavior is, is, is a hallmark of coevolution. Basically, in the arms race, the plant puts forward some defense or barrier to feeding. And in this case, the herbivore or the caterpillar has a, an answer to that, a behavior that takes that defense out of the way. Uh, but some of the caterpillars are going to die in the process. They're going to starve in the process. They're going to fall off the leaf in the process before having even gotten their, their teeth into the leaf. Yeah. And then, and the description of this was was great. The the illustrations and some of the photographs of the the hairs being mown down, <laughs> and or the waxy surface of those different Asclepias being um, where the caterpillar makes the little web so it doesn't slide off. Yes. And this is just the beginning of the decline of the monarch population. But, but by the end of this, the successful egg, hatching, eating, going through the instars, pupating, and then coming out to being a monarch is the odds are not in the favor of the monarch. Yeah. So uh, once the leaf little area is shaved, the the caterpillar sinks its its teeth into the leaf. And uh, in that first bite, uh, it tends – the caterpillar punctures canals that carry latex. Probably many of you out there have broken a milkweed leaf and, and, and had that white sticky substance ooze out. That, that's a substance we call latex. Um, early botanists thought of it like plant's blood because it coagulates very quickly upon exposure to air. 
milkweeds, of course, are famous for, for their latex. They're named in a way. The milk in milkweed is that latex. But lots of plants have latex. About 10 percent of all plants produce this white stuff, whether it's a, a fig tree or a papaya. Dandelions, even as a weed on our next to our sidewalks, have some latex. And that latex is kept under pressure in canals so that when the caterpillar takes a bite, a large droplet oozes out. And this is one of these statistics that just always uh, astounds me. Um, and, and this wasn't my own work. It was work of other, other scientists. But through field surveys over time, uh, it, they estimated that 30 to 50 percent of all monarchs perish on their first day of life drowned in latex. Mm. Um, so they shave the leaves, but after that first bite, they're overwhelmed by this large droplet um, that's, again, drying into a sticky um, mess on exposure to air, and it's also filled with toxins. That's the second barrier to feeding. And, um, of course, the monarchs have an answer to that. In the natural history of coevolution, every defense is met with some counterploy. Um, so the monarchs have found ways to behaviorally drain or deactivate that latex flow. They will painstakingly cut the little veins that deliver the latex. Sometimes they might spend 40 minutes to an hour cutting those little veins. And then once they have an area that's free of latex flow, they'll devour that piece of leaf uh, much more quickly. It's unbelievable. And this, so when we come to the toxins, cardenolide? Cardenolide, exactly. Cardenolides. Are they in the latex as well as in the the cells of the, the, the leaf flesh? Yes. Yeah, so we've, uh, we've found the cardenolides in all the milkweed tissues, um, from the roots to the leaves to the latex, even little trace amounts in the floral nectar. Um, and uh, it's kind of interesting. In some species of milkweeds, the, the cardenolides are concentrated in the latex, 10 to 100-fold, whereas in other species, they're, they're certainly present, but they're not concentrated in the latex. So the, the latex presents several, several uh, dilemmas or several obstacles for the little caterpillar. That's right. It drowns it, just overwhelms it, and then it becomes quite solid quite quickly. So it, I don't know, mummifies it or something. Yep. And then it also poisons it. That's right. And in fact, that's not the end of it. They have, they have these digestive enzymes in the latex that actually uh, eat away at the monarch's gut lining. So that's a whole other side of the story. Um, yeah. It, the odds are really against this little tiny caterpillar. So now we're at the, the toxins. Yeah, there are 130 species of Asclepius, uh, basically Mexico northward. It's mostly a temperate genus of plants. There are about 12 species in tropical South America. Basically, in, in the natural history of coevolution, uh, in the monarch milkweed interaction, the, the plant has put forward the trichomes and they get shaved. Uh, the plant has put forward the latex and the, there's this cutting and depressurizing. And and once, if you if the caterpillar survived those two big barriers, now it's finally feeding away. And the, you know the the caterpillar, it, it's like the uh, the children's story. It's hungry, mm -hmm. <laughs> and in order to build that body, it has a lot of leaf to eat to to generate the material for for its butterfly. And that's where the toxins come into play. The milkweed plant has the same toxic principles that are in 
foxglove or digitalis. The general class of compounds are called cardiac glycosides. Uh, I'll refer to them as cardenolides as well. They're steroids that are very potent toxins. They, they bind to a physiological pump that is important for each and every animal cell. What typically makes the milkweed just so poisonous is that any animal that comes into contact uh, with it in terms of consuming it has the potential to have these cellular pumps be halted. Here again, the monarch butterfly has figured out through natural selection and evolution over the eons a means to be essentially immune to the toxins that the milkweeds put forward. With some collaborators in, in Germany, uh, Professor Susanna Dobler there and others, we've identified genetic changes, and there's very few in the genes that code for the cellular pumps of the monarch that have very ever so slightly changed the shape of those pumps to make it so that the cardenolides don't bind and poison the caterpillar. Uh, so they're not alone in this, but they they work with the levels of toxin in the different plants in a couple of different ways besides just being able to live with it and process it. You mentioned the, the, the sort of special relationships that monarchs have with the cardenolides. Not only are they immune, are they not poisoned by and large by having eaten plants that have these uh, cardenolides, but monarchs do something, they take things a step further, and that is that they pack away these cardenolides in their own bodies that, tra that transfers through the chrysalis into the adult butterfly. And the butterfly has the most concentrated cardenolides in its wing tissue, in the wing scales. And you might ask the question, you know, why is the animal putting these poisons on the outside of its body on the wings? The monarch is using those toxins in, in its own defense against birds, mice, and lizard predators that would, uh, would like to be eating the butterflies. So they're taking the plant toxin and using it in their, in their own defense. And that, you know, is, is such a great part of the monarch story, especially as we learn it even as children, is that they are so bright and showy. They are displaying flagrantly how um, beautiful and bright they are because it is a reminder to their would-be predators that they taste terrible. Not only taste terrible, but will be poisonous to whoever eats them as a result of this sequestration of the toxins. Pretty ingenious to take the toxins that would kill you and use them to make you stronger. Absolutely. Um, yeah, with a postdoctoral fellow uh, who studied in my lab from Germany, he mapped that trait of sequestration um, along uh, the evolution of what we call the milkweed butterflies. It's a, a tribe of butterflies called the Danaeani. Monarchs are kind of one of the last species to branch off of that. But somewhere in the evolution of those 70-odd species is where the art of sequestration evolved. In our second of five episodes on our gardens as critically important habitat, we talk all things monarch butterflies with Dr. Anurag Agrawal, author of Monarchs and Milkweed, a migrating butterfly, a poisonous plant, and their remarkable story of coevolution. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Thinking out loud here, 
So last week I quoted a figure regarding pesticide, insecticide, and herbicide use in the U.S. at 3.5 pounds per household. Phil Stiles of the Xerces Society and founder of B-City USA wrote to sadly correct me, reminding me that according to Dr. Mark Winston of Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Americans average using 3.5 pounds of pesticides per capita each year. That's every one of us, not just our households. Ugh, we have so much room for improvement, don't we? I think my biggest takeaway from reading Dr. Agrawal's book and then speaking with him in this conversation this week is this. There is a combination of forces working against the monarchs and biodiversity in general. And so we, in turn, as informed and caring humans and gardeners, need to take a combination, multi-prong approach that Dr. Agrawal suggests in order to help make a difference. We need to plant more native milkweeds in our area. We need to plant more nectar and pollen and nesting plants in our gardens in general. As Dr. Dave Coulson of the Bumblebee Conservancy out of the United Kingdom recommended to us in his interview here last year, we need to plant a lot of flowers, flowers that bloom throughout the year. The more of them that are native or near native to our areas, the better. We need to have clean, healthy soil and clean, fresh water available for the visiting and migrating bees, butterflies, birds, frogs, lizards, and snakes, who we want to feel welcome and supported. We need to level up at policy levels, as Dr. Agrawal suggested. Research and then support the local and national individuals, agencies, and organizations doing the best and most effective work for our plant and animal companions whose lives sustain ours. By way of example, I'm a supporter of the Xerces Society, of the California Native Plant Society, and of my own local environmental council. And as we're in a long stretch of political debate and decision-making here in the U.S., look into what each of your potential candidates knows, what they say, and what they do on these fronts. Ask them these questions. We vote with every dollar we spend, and every dollar we don't spend. There are good and smart people at work on these issues with us. If there are organizations or individuals you particularly respect at this work in the world, please put their names and links to their websites in the comments on the weekly Cultivating Place post on Instagram or Facebook for everyone to see. We nature-loving gardeners are legion, and together we make a difference. Thank you for being here. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Anurag Agrawal. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to finish up our conversation with Dr. Anurag Agrawal about his research focused on the ancient relationship between monarch butterflies and milkweed plants. Welcome back. The monarchs very specifically look for and lay their eggs on the smallest 
of the shoots of milkweed coming up at a given moment in the season. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. I think so many people, and and it's a testament to home gardeners and others being really good naturalists and observers, um, have made a similar observation where the monarch butterfly might be attracted in some ways and nectar on the tallest plants, but when they're going to lay their eggs, it's often on the most juvenile plants that are that are the smallest. And I would say that we understand some of that, but not all of that. In fact, uh, I have an undergraduate student uh, working with me this summer, and we're going to try to tackle some of the specifics of why monarch butterflies lay their eggs on juvenile plants. It's often milkweeds that have re-sprouted after some kind of damage or mowing or getting knocked over. Most of the field or of the patch might be more mature plants. As many of you know, um, milkweeds will re-sprout if they're, if they're knocked over. And it's that young, succulent tissue that is preferable for laying eggs. And uh, it's in part due to tissue being softer. Typically, that tissue has a higher nitrogen content, which is essential for protein building of a body. Those are often the most attractive plants for the monarchs. But there's still a, there's some mysteries relating to that. And, and again, with my, uh, my student Elise this summer, we hope to uh, uncover some of those. And can you describe how the monarch knows this about that little plant? Well, you asked the hard questions. Um, <laughs> the whole process of deciding to lay an egg is a very complicated one. Here's what I'd say we know. When the monarch butterfly is flying high in the sky, there are typically, there are some long distance cues that are used to find a patch of milkweed. And those long distance cues might be visual in nature, although obviously these insects do not see the same way that we do. Uh, And some might be plumes of odors that are emanating from a patch of milkweed. Mm -hmm. And that might direct, you know, over the course of I don't know, 20, 50 feet, the monarch to come a little closer. Once the butterfly lands on the plant, the female, she uses spikes on her feet, her antennae, and actually um, uh, sensors on her backside, on her abdomen, dragging those, drumming the antennae on the leaf, all three apparatus to sense whether this is a useful and a good home for for its offspring. Sometimes the butterfly does that for 30 seconds, a minute, and decides, nope, not good enough. And other times will uh, deposit an egg there. I have a colleague here at Cornell that in the late 80s identified the very specific chemical compounds that are necessary for the monarch to lay eggs, a family of compounds called flavonoids. But the whole behavioral process of sussing out the plant, I'd say there's still there are still some mysteries there to be uh, unraveled. One of the things we also know is that there are ups and downs in the populations of monarchs that are chartable over long periods of time. There'll be a terrible year, then there'll be a good year, then there'll be a, a medium year. And there are a couple of things that are at play in this that you go through really beautifully in the book. And, and these include, of course, the known horrors of climate change. There are known shifts in weather over periods of time in a given environment. So in the West, we know that drought is a recurring issue and heat is a recurring issue and cold storms, you know, can come through and be variable over time. These are slightly different than climate change as a whole. They are more of a normal 
ebb and flow. And then, of course, we have habitat loss and we have insecticides and herbicides. And I think like all of the species loss we're looking at in insects, at this point, it is not believed that there's any one one bullet, that it is a suite of issues. Will you walk us through some of your research conclusions on how these are contributing to the terrible losses we have seen in both our Western and Eastern populations of monarchs? I think one of the things that makes monarchs uh, special is their annual tremendous uh, long-distance migration. Uh, And how that plays into their conservation is these are animals that are really residents not of any county or any country. They're they're residents of North America at, at a very large scale. And what that means is they are experiencing and, and really tasting or eating bits of the environment across the annual life cycle from Ontario in Canada to where I am in central New York to Mexico or in, on the West Coast, uh, you know, from Southern California to Northern California. I think of them as sentinels. You know, they're, they're really out there probing the environment. And the fact that their populations have been declining on both the West Coast and on the East Coast uh, tells us that something is not right. Monarch butterflies in general are a high-fluctuation species in that over the last 50 years, whether it's anecdotes or, or hard-won data, it's very clear that uh, if it's warm but rainy in the spring, that signals a positive year for buildup of the monarch butterfly populations. Uh, the long-term drought uh, in, in California certainly had a negative impact on the population. You know, 2010 to 2014 was, uh, I think, a 100-year drought period in, in Texas, southern U- United States, and northern Mexico. And certainly that had a negative impact on the monarch population, um, both in the spring migrating up and in the fall uh, when nectar is so important when they're migrating south. I would certainly agree that issues relating to climate and what I'd call the the year-to-year fluctuations that, as you say, are, are not quite normal but expected to occur every once in a while – Uh, have uh, large impacts on the monarch population. What's been harder to pin down in a statistically rigorous way are the impacts of climate change, in part because those changes occur at the decadal scale. For monarch butterfly monitoring, we, we really only have very strong data for 20 to 25 years. The best data on monarch butterfly monitoring comes from California. Professor Arthur Shapiro at, at the University of California, Davis, has been monitoring really all butterflies that he encounters on a, a biweekly census for the last 45 years. With students and others, they pulled out the the 45-year trend for monarch butterflies in California, which is decidedly uh, downward sloping. I think we all are seeing the signs of climate change and their negative impacts on organisms like the monarchs, but it's not always the easiest to statistically show. At the overwintering sites in Mexico, as one example, the uh, frequency of winter storms appears to be increasing, and those winter storms cause the butterflies to freeze and to fall off of the trees. The long-term inputs of the general class of chemicals we call pesticides certainly uh, has had a negative impact on insects writ large and, and likely the monarch butterfly as well. And they come in at least two forms, insecticides that Uh, directly 
kill insects like the monarch and herbicides which kill plants typically to clean agricultural fields of weeds. In in that case, uh, milkweed plants are also being killed. I think one of the most insidious things about uh, insecticides is uh, what scientists are now discovering and and calling their sublethal effects. So, of course, when, when high amounts of insecticides are sprayed and if those drift or if they get on to uh, milkweed plants or other places monarchs are, those monarchs will just die. But what we're now learning is that very low doses of some of these compounds that might be considered safe because they're not killing the insects, they can have negative impacts on those organisms nonetheless. They might be smaller, weaker, less likely to be able to migrate, etc. And that's where, you know, you can count the butterfly, but it's not really a successful uh, contributor to the population. And then let's talk about habitat loss and the role of milkweeds as they are speciated out across the the habitat that the, the butterfly relies on in all four of its generations. Yeah, the milkweed plant is really most important as a, as a food for the caterpillar. And um, so in the, the annual migratory cycle, there's one generation of the monarch that lives for about eight months. Uh, you know, that's the special generation. It, it feeds as a caterpillar on milkweeds uh, in August, and, um, and then it flies the great distance to its overwintering sites, stays there for several months, and then will migrate back. During that very long period of time, milkweed is not really in the picture as a necessity for the butterfly. Once the butterfly has, uh, has it closed, has come out of its chrysalis, it is no longer dependent on the milkweed plant. It really needs water and flower nectar to um, uh, undertake that long-distance migration uh, to survive the wintering period and to, and to fly back. So the key times for the milkweed plants in terms of boosting the monarch's population are spring and summer. When the butterflies are migrating back from their overwintering sites, they are in search of newly sprouting up milkweed plants. They find them through their chemical cues uh, and lay eggs. And and that's where the the fun begins, the co-evolutionary battle that we talked about, where they, through the consumption of those leaves, build their caterpillar body. California has about 25 species of milkweeds. There are 20 different species, many endemics to Florida. Uh, where I am based in central New York, uh, we can find about find five species if we drive around. And all of those are good hosts for the monarch butterfly. So one of the things that comes up as a result of your research, while one of the great recommendations is protect the milkweed, plant more milkweed, one of the things that your research brings up is that that's a lovely sentiment and gesture, but it is not going to make a difference at the point your research indicates is where the, the population is having the greatest trouble. Am I, am I right in that summation? Yeah, you are right. Um, you know, I, I would, I would hesitate to ever say don't plant a native milkweed plant. Right. Especially if it's the native species for your area. Planting the native species is, a, is in general a positive thing and it can only help. Our research has shown that at the continental scale when we've tried to 
put the pieces together of the monarch's life cycle, the gap does not seem to be in the number of milkweed plants. Even you know this last summer, which was one of the biggest summers in a very long time, again, east of the Rocky Mountains for monarch butterflies, uh, it, it didn't appear in most places that there, the milkweed was all totally mowed down and there wasn't enough. Our statistical analyses as well as more casual observation would suggest that uh, milkweed is, is, is not limiting. You know, I think from a conservation perspective, um, home gardeners as well as uh, habitat restoration in general should seek to really provide as much natural habitat not only to monarchs but to wildlife at large. Yeah. There's a really an important role to play for folks that are interested in conservation and wildlife by allowing native wildlands and habitat to to regenerate. It's a lovely moment in the book, actually, where you, you come to this, you're almost apologetic. <laughs> like, I want to tell you that this will, I don't want to be the, as you call yourself, the pin-headed scientist. Um, but you're also clearly a gardener and the son of an avid gardener. And so you you do bring in the ecology. Clearly, you want us to to plant our native milkweeds as as far and as wide as we possibly can to protect them where they already exist, to not use chemicals that might endanger or weaken any population of insects. But if it's monarchs that are on your heart, don't use these chemicals. That will be a help. When you look at the all of this suite of, of obstacles that the, the monarchs are facing, illegal logging. Yes and habitat destruction at the wintering site in Mexico, the development and degradation and, and fragmentation of habitat in the California wintering sites. These seem to be pretty substantial, and yet we as home gardeners might not be able to take direct action that impacts those. As the gardener in you, what would you tell us are our best modes of action for helping? I would take a multi-pronged approach. I think the old adage of uh, think global but act local is important. From the perspective of, uh, of home gardening and what goes on in K-12 through schools, perhaps you know, experiencing the magic, uh, finding the caterpillars in the field, seeing the butterflies uh, fluttering by, the transformation and the metamorphosis, Really important, I think, at the youngest ages, but also for us adults. I think it's widely agreed, you know, people want to protect and conserve things that they love and understand. You can't rear one of these things or watch the magic and sort of not fall in love. So at a small scale, I think we can help by being connected to nature and connecting those around us that perhaps are not so much in that mode. I'm personally uh, a fan of um, contributing to, in whatever way people can, again, local or larger conservation organizations that are uh, protecting habitat to, to leave it wild. And so I think those are, those are two things that we can do is we can educate ourselves. We can, you know, the, the great thing about education also is once you watch and understand something, um, you often fall in love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're at a profound moment in um, uh, in the biodiversity crisis in general and for 
monarch biology or monarch butterfly conservation more specifically. This summer, the Fish and Wildlife Service will give its answer. It's been petitioned to list monarchs as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. And uh, they've been they've been working very hard conducting research and surveys and modeling. And so I think it's it's a very exciting and important time for the monarch butterfly and um, and for decisions that we have to make as a society about what we value um, uh, more broadly. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been an honor to speak with you and hear about your work and help us understand ever more greatly some of this magic in our world. Thank you. It's been great to be here. In 2018, North American scientific reports marked dramatic losses in populations of one of our most charismatic insects here in the U.S., the monarch butterfly. With an estimated 14.8% decline in eastern monarch populations and 86% one-year declines in western populations of monarchs. While monarchs are known for seasonal fluctuation in their numbers, we heard this week from monarch researcher Dr. Anurag Agrawal to help understand these numbers and these life cycles more. Dr. Agrawal is a professor of ecology, evolutionary biology, and entomology at Cornell University. His 2017 book titled Monarchs and Milkweed, a Migrating Butterfly, a Poisonous Plant, and Their Remarkable Story of Coevolution helps to dispel some misunderstandings and helps to reiterate actions we as home gardeners can take to help. Join us again next week as these conversations on our gardens as helpful habitat continue in this five-part series. Next week, we're joined by Christine Nye, horticulturalist at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, Illinois. She oversees the landscapes both inside and outside the aquarium, working to make them better contributors to habitat at all stages in the life cycles of wildlife resident to the aquarium, and those migrating through. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from this week's conversation with Dr. Agrawal, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.